Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit, and this is our first podcast in a few weeks. I've been out of pocket for a bit, and last weekend I was back at uh, Duke, where I went to law school with some friends, went to go back for a basketball game, which I do every year. This year I met my friends from law school there, and we try to see each other once a year or so. And this is really just a, a quick um, aside. We all graduated in 1990, which is uh, 33 years ago, if you can do simple math. And yet when we get together, the dynamic is exactly the same. It's almost as if there was a time warp from 1990 when we left school to when we see each other. To me, my friends all look the same. I was with my friends Elvis, Pete, and Paul. We look the same as when we graduated, at least in my mind. We laugh at the same stupid stuff, the same jokes. We bring up things that happened in law school that still make us laugh and still feel like they were yesterday because to us, it really does feel like yesterday. We, we haven't matured at all. And we were sitting at a table at the Washington Duke bar. The Washington Duke is the uh, hotel that's on the Duke campus. And we sat there for hours when we first all arrived. We all uh, came at, at, at staggered times. And we started somehow talking about who had died from our class. And I think that's something that's normal. And if anybody's a listener here who's above the age of 50, I think they'll probably understand what I'm talking about. It's still funny at this age because, you know, not everybody's dying. We're all, you know, relatively young. But there are, alas, uh, some misfortunate ones who, who've died since then. So we were trying to name all the, the deaths. And, and this is really not appropriate for a podcast. And I know that Pete is listening to this and he's like, don't do it. Just don't do it. And I won't. I'm not going to do what you think I'm going to do. But anyway, we were sitting there discussing the people that had died and we were all coming up with a name or two. And sometimes I would add a name and if somebody who I hoped was dead, but alas, was not dead and we were coming up with a few names, and all of a sudden, we had an incredibly, incredibly good stroke of fortune when a friend of ours from law school I haven't seen physically in 32 years, I believe. He's a few years older, our friend Charlie, and he was a few years older than us, so he was mature back then. And he was just as mature, more mature than us back then as he is now, exactly the same dynamic. And he's a big part of the Duke Law reunion and alumni stuff. So he promised us that he would get us a dead list. And I'm going to hold him to that. Charlie, if you're listening, uh, I'm going to be in touch this week. I want a full uh, list of the dead people in our class and feel free to add a couple of guys. I think we know who I'm talking about. Now, I want to discuss a, a few issues on this podcast I want to talk about a client, a case that I had from 20 years ago, exactly. I also want to talk about the show Fauda. I don't know if anybody watches that. I find the show just to be incredible. It's the only show on TV that I watch, but uh, I want to um, talk about that show a bit because uh, I think it's just so awesome. In addition, I want to talk about some other issues that are in the news. We should talk about the shooting and the arrests in Memphis, I mean, just an incredibly bizarre situation. But I want to talk a little more about the racism and things around uh, surrounding that. And I don't really want to talk about George Santos because it's just – it's so ridiculous. And I'm, I'm just – you know, I found out this weekend I'm reading and apparently he uh, was saying he was praising Hitler a few years ago. This is after he lied about saying that he was Jewish. 
He uh, changed his treasure for his campaign. The person who he changed it to denied that he ever agreed to be the treasurer. Now Santos is lying about how he got the money for the campaign. Initially said it was a loan from himself. Now apparently that is a lie. Everything is a lie. And I know that the Democrats are saying, oh, don't, or, or, or excuse me, the Republicans are saying, oh, don't say that he needs to resign because if he needs to resign, then all the Democrats who lie in Congress need to resign. Here's the difference. This guy's actually committing crimes when he's running for office. I mean, he's committing crimes. And in addition, I think that there should be some bright line rule. Now, I'm a Republican, although I'm not, I'm not MAGA. I'm not all that, as, as you all know, but I'm, I'm still a Republican. I think that there should be a rule in the party that if you praise Hitler publicly, that's got to be like you cross that line and you can't run for office. Now, I know this is difficult. I know. I get it. I get it. There's so many Republicans and politicians of all stripes who just want to talk about their Hitler love publicly. Look, you got Rashida Tlaib, you've got Ilhan Omar, you've got AOC, you got plenty of liberals who managed to keep their Hitler love on the DL. I don't think it's asking so much for the Republicans to just shut the fuck up about Hitler publicly. I know it's not easy. I know because there's a lot of times you you just feel like a, there's a good time for a Hitler joke or you want to talk about how awesome he was and all the great things that he did, all 10 million of them. I know you want to say it, Republicans. I know it. But maybe we just draw that line because I think you're going to find that a lot of people aren't going to vote for someone if it's known when he runs for office that he was praising Hitler. With Santos, obviously, no one knew about all the lies or his, his Hitler praise until he was already in office. So again, if you want to be taken seriously, George Santos has to leave the party, has to be eliminated immediately, has to leave. I know you've got Elizabeth Warren. She lied and Biden lies every day and they all lie, but that's over like decades of service. This guy's been in office for like 15 minutes and he's lied about everything. I mean, he's clearly a criminal. He's clearly getting money from sources that are not appropriate. I don't know that he should be getting put on committees also. That seems a little bit bizarre. But hey, you know, look, to me, both the parties are pretty much the same. I don't trust either one of them. So I'm not surprised that Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans are not screaming about getting rid of George Santos. But hey, that's just me. Now, the case I want to talk about for a few minutes is a case that occurred sometime in late 2003. The case is the story of Tom Ratchko. And I received a call from a federal probation officer, one who works on pre-sentence reports for defendants who are convicted. They write up a pre-sentence report with all the background of the defendant and also the crimes they committed. It's basically just a shorthand memo, and it can be 50, 60, 70 pages that acts like a guide for the judge at sentencing, and there's a recommendation. Anyway, you become uh, somewhat, you can become close with the probation officers because you talk to them a lot close in the sense that either it's not somebody from the government, so you can actually enjoy speaking to them as opposed to a prosecutor. And this probation officer who was calling me, I had on a case previously, told me that her cousin had been arrested. And that's not all that unusual because I get cases from all kinds of people in the criminal justice system I have over the years, judges, prosecutors, you name it, they'll refer their family and friends. And if you're a good lawyer, they're just regular people too, and they want their loved ones to have good lawyers. 
But this one was really a wild one. She asked me to represent her cousin, who was an NYPD cop. He was actually a retired narcotics detective, and he had just gotten arrested for robbing drug dealers over like the prior six years. He would arrest them with his partner, and they would just rob the drugs and the drug proceeds. And it was millions of dollars worth, and it was all over the papers, and including on the front page of the New York Post. If you go to my website, jeffreylickman.com, and you go to either it's in the news or results at the very bottom, because that's probably the first case I started writing about, there's a, a picture of the cover of the Post that said, Coke Cop Shame, with an exclamation point. So this was a big deal, this case. It had just been all over the news, and, and she had asked me to represent him because she'd seen me work, and she trusted me. Now, ripping off drug dealers when you arrest them is a bad thing, even in New York. So as I said, the press really was out for blood, <clears throat> as was law enforcement that were working on the case. Somehow, a very dirty profession in New York, law enforcement, and it is. There's a lot of bad cops. I know it. It gets very righteous, the profession, when one of their own is busted. And when I looked in the papers, I saw that law enforcement sources, cops, had already leaked that Tom had been talking to federal prosecutors after his arrest. This is before I even got into the case. Just days after his partner's arrest, the headlines were it was crazy. I looked them all up. Uh, the internet had just become a major thing. This is what I read. Law enforcement sources provided this information to the New York Daily News on December 4th, the very next day, and it was reported on December 5th. The Daily News reported, quote, it took only a day for the feds to flip ex-NYPD Detective Tom Ratchko. Another article, ex-cop seeking deal with feds in heist. That was the New York Daily News, December 5th, 2003. Uh, within this article is a report from, quote, sources that Ratchko claims he threw the drug money away. On the same day, December 5th, 2003, the New York Times reported that Mr. Ratchko, quote, is cooperating with pr pr prosecutors and internal affairs investigators, several law enforcement officials said yesterday. And it was just like article after article you know, saying what he was going to be providing information about. And they have cops that are being quoted without their names. You have other ones saying, I can tell you that he's flipping and he's talking. Really gross stuff. Uh, authorities are telling reporters that Ratchko was a degenerate gambler who, quote, told investigators that he tossed the black satchel stuffed with cash in a dumpster near his Bronx apartment. Then there's another one in uh, the New York Post uh, the newspaper noted, quote, Ratchko quickly began cooperating and agreed to enter rehab. Vasquez, that's his partner, has made a similar offer in a private session with prosecutors, but has yet to decide to turn state's evidence. This is what cops do. When they have an opportunity to leak stuff to the press, they'll never use their own name, God forbid, because they're frankly, they're cowards. So they'll leak stuff anonymously and they want to hurt the case. They want to hurt the defendant. And if it's one of their own, you know, even better. And frankly, it was disgusting. There should have been a probe. There should have been something done to find out who the leakers were because you can get somebody killed that way. But clearly these cops, I mean, they've done so much worse. So it's not a big deal for them. Now, I was representing a lot of mobsters 20 years ago. So representing a crooked cop who was apparently squealing to the feds wasn't really a good look for me. But the probation officer who was Tom's cousin asked me to represent him. And I felt somewhat obligated I suppose I didn't like all the scummy leaking from the NYPD and the feds and what they had done. 
So for all those reasons combined, I said, hey, you know what? This profession, every day is an interesting day. Let me take this case. Now, the feds took a very hard line against him and his partner, I learned as soon as I got into the case. My client, Tom, had retired the year before and was already receiving a pretty significant pension. And that pissed them off to no ends. They couldn't get the money back and he'd have a pension for life. They tried. They asked me if he would give the pension back and there was just no way because after this case, how would he be able to, to eat? That pension was that important. And it just, there was just no way. It was really off the table. In the charges, they claimed that my client and his partner had robbed drug dealers that they were arresting. As I said, they took the drugs, they took the money for years, and my client's partner actually got the drugs sold on the street, and they kept that money too. My client was alleged to have recruited other cops to join the scheme. He was the leader, according to the feds, and all that pissed them off. The charges came with a 10-year mandatory minimum due to the amount of drugs. And the only way that you can get below the 10-year mandatory minimum, if there's no violence involved, is if you can either cooperate or you can do what's called a safety valve proffer, which I've talked about in, uh, I think, the Emma Coronel case, where you go in and you simply tell them what you did, nobody else, and they allow you to go below the 10-year mandatory minimum or any mandatory minimum on a drug case. So he had a 10-year mandatory minimum, and the maximum was life without parole. Plus, he was a cop, and he abused his position, so you couldn't expect many judges to feel any empathy for the guy. But I really happened to like him a lot, and it was very clear to me from his debriefings with the feds, which, again, had occurred before I was even in the case, that many cops were crooked. Miranda rights were like never read. You know, you see that on TV. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to a lawyer. They're like never read uh, pretty much by cops. And cops were engaged in all sorts of bad things. And, and this was 20 years ago. Uh, this wasn't like something that just happened. But he was really the first law enforcement official I had represented. And I got to understand them better through Tom. He was a very decent guy. He was a great father. And he had a ridiculously dangerous and high-pressure job. But again, I just really hit it off with him. I really grew to like him. And then things got worse in the case. The feds told me that they didn't believe Tom's story when he had told them that he was a degenerate gambler and that he had gambled all the proceeds that he had stolen and the drugs that were sold, that he gambled it all away. They said he provided a lot of good information to them, and they thought they could make cases with him, but there's no way they were going to let him cooperate because they thought he was lying about the money, and they wouldn't offer him any cooperation agreement. And I think this might have been my first cooperation agreement of my life. I'm pretty sure it was because it was really an anomaly for me. I wouldn't even represent cooperators then. But without the cooperation agreement, as I said, he was getting a 10-year mandatory minimum, possibly up to life. It's not like he was getting 10 years. In my mind, he was probably going to get 25. That's what I thought that this case was worth, was 25 years. He had done a lot of good things over the years, but he had done a lot of bad things as well. And it just was an awful situation. And I remember thinking, and this happens a lot to me, I find myself in a situation thinking, ugh, how did you get yourself involved in this? And that's how I felt about Tom Ratchko's case, that how could I get him out of this? And, and I'm stuck with him in it. And he had given up any chance of really defending himself because of the proffers that he had given. I mean, he had given those statements, he had made omissions, and so it would be very difficult to try the case. So we were really stuck. Regardless, I mean, the evidence was overwhelming. They had him robbing drug dealers on tape. 
surveillance cameras and stuff. So her choice was either a trial or a straight plea. And as I said, it's 10 to life. It was all bad. And, and I, again, you know, you betray the public, you disgrace the badge. No judge is going to, they're going to want to make an example of you. And the feds would not budge on this. And I tried, I begged, I pled anything I could do with him. His partner was having a much easier time with the feds and he would be getting a cooperation agreement. My guy, Tom would not be. And, and again, he was alleged to be the leader and it just was looking like a disaster. Tom had made clear to me that he didn't have any of the proceeds of the crime left and that he had gambled them all away. And I believed him. Because it just, it wasn't like there was $40 million worth missing and he was willing to go to jail for all those years to keep that money. It wasn't a lot of money and there was just no way. It made no sense. He would not throw his life away and lie about a few hundred grand, whatever it was, you know, his part that was left. So I'm sitting there and the one nice thing about being a young lawyer is that you're not really jaded yet. You're not jaded at all. So you have like a blank slate in your head in terms of thinking about ideas. You're not just wedded to, oh, well, we'll just do what we've always done. And I had what I consider to be, you know, one of the handful of real eureka moments that I've had in my life. I asked Tom if he'd be willing to take a polygraph test, a lie detector test about whether he had kept the stolen drug money and where it had gone. And of course, he said yes, because he knew that he wasn't lying. There's no hesitation at all from him. So I contacted the guy who had handled polygraph tests for the FBI. He was now retired, and he had a private polygraph business in Virginia. He agreed to fly up on a weekend to my office. He walks into the office. I think it was a Sunday. All he had on was a suit, and he had this silver, this hard-shelled silver briefcase, like a regular-sized briefcase. And I brought him into the conference room. We had three minutes of discussions. He was all business. And like an hour or so later, the polygraph guy walks out. Tom was left in the, in our conference room. And he said, Tom was telling the truth about the money. There was no question um, that he blew it all on gambling. I thanked him. I paid him and off he went back to the airport. Easy peasy. The next day I contacted, it was, that was now Monday. I contacted the federal prosecutor who was handling the case. And I told him there was Obviously, we had an impasse, but they had no evidence that Tom was lying about where the stolen money had gone. And I couldn't prove that he had blown it on gambling because he didn't keep any receipts or anything. It wasn't like he was going to the casinos. He was blowing it like on street gambling shit. And I said, look, this is what I'm willing to do. I want you to polygraph him. And immediately the prosecutor said, there's no way. I said, look, polygraph him. If he fails, we will plead to the indictment. That's 10 to life. If he passes, you got to give him a cooperation agreement because you told me that everything else about him was perfect. Prosecutor said, no way. Polygraph tests aren't uh, infallible. We're not doing it. And I thought it was really unfair. It's not like they had caught him in lies and they had a legitimate reason not to cooperate him. I I just thought it was bad. We went back and forth and I made clear that he's willing to tell the truth and he'd let the FBI do it. We wouldn't use our polygraph expert. Of course, I never told him that I had just done it the day before and he had passed with flying colors. That's why I was so confident. If we had failed, I would have taken the results, thrown them in the garbage, and we would have tried something else. But I told him, look, you administer it. It's a test. You have your 
polygraph expert determine whether or not he's lying, and I will live with the results. We will live with the results. And the prosecutor was like still resisting, but I could sense a crack. And I finally said, look, if you're not even willing to let him take a polygraph, I'm just going to go to the press and tell them all of this. And it's just completely outrageous that you'd hang this guy out to dry when he's cooperated, when he's had his uh, life put in danger by people in your office with all the leaks. And now I'm willing to let you have Adam with a polygraph test and you won't do it. Shockingly, they relented at that point. I guess they realized it was just, uh, you know, there was no way out of it for them. So we went there for the polygraph test a few days later, and the feds did all they could to make him uncomfortable, which is dumb because the baseline of his testing would also show that he was nervous. So what's the difference? But they wanted to make him uncomfortable. They piled all these agents into the room with him when he took the test, including agents that he had known and had worked with and was presumably embarrassed to have to talk about this stuff in front of. It was really ridiculous. I thought it was dishonest. It was sleazy what the prosecutors did. But hey, this is what it is. I mean, maybe you're you're hearing this for the first time, but prosecutors lie. They cheat. They do all sorts of bad stuff all the time. When it was over, the prosecutor begrudgingly told me that it was a close call. I remember that. It was a close call, but Tom had passed the polygraph test. We could have the cooperation deal, which would allow the judge to go under the 10-year mandatory minimum sentence. Naturally, as I said, I had never told them that we had passed the test the day before. And this is the kind of thinking you have to have as a lawyer. You can't just, you just can't be lazy and do things the way they've always been done. You got somebody's life in your hands and he's got a family. So you have to do everything you can. You got to pull out all the stops. And this was one that I did. You know, I was just a lawyer for 12 years, I suppose, at that point. We get to the sentencing and the government did all they could to make it worse for Tom, in my mind. Our plea agreement that we had taken two years prior did not include an upward adjustment in the sentencing guidelines for him being a leader. Now, all of a sudden, two years later, they decided he needed a four-level upward adjustment for leadership. And I was looking at my sentencing Uh, memos and my sentencing letters to the court. And I remember reading this just the other day, reading it and just being sickened about how badly they had treated him, which was amazing to me because nearly every FBI agent I had worked with on cases from that office that testified in Eastern District of New York cases, they all lied their asses off on the stand during trials. And nearly three years. So, you know, as bad as Tom was, it's not like the rest of them were clean. So nearly three years after he was arrested, Tom was sentenced, and it was a a brutal sentencing. And I remember the judge just giving me this look of just utter disgust, a very fair judge, a female judge who I really liked. And I remember just looking up and hearing the following words coming out of my mouth. I wasn't even thinking, judge, is there a problem? Because of the total look of disgust, and she sort of shook herself out of it and said, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to look that way. I just was listening. I guess she was sickened on the inside and it came on the outside. He ended up receiving a sentence of seven years in jail, which was incredible considering he was facing life uh, just a little while before and his sentencing guidelines were life. His guidelines were life. Forget the statutory maximum. When you factored in all the stuff that he had done, Had he not gotten the cooperation agreement, the judge very well could have given him a life sentence without parole. And it was incredible because his partner, who also cooperated and was not the leader, got six years, just got one year 
less than him. Tom didn't return any of the money and the partner had. It was really an incredible result in my mind. And I, I grew to really like him and appreciate not just him, but other cops being in that kind of predicament. That was a, a good education for me. And I'm not saying that it's right to ever steal from people that you're arresting. Obviously, it's not. But it just made me realize that the work can really make you nuts sometimes. And that's what happened here. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is the show Fauda. I'm not sure if you watch. It's a Netflix show. I'm not sure if you watch it. It's a thriller. It's in its fourth season. It's an Israeli show. It's got subtitles. And now you're thinking, oh, I don't want to watch a show with subtitles. It's that good. And it doesn't really interfere at all. It doesn't interfere at all with the show. You'll like it regardless. And it tells the stories of an undercover unit in the Israeli defense forces, which deal with Palestinian terrorists. It's a show that you can't stop watching when each season is dropped. And I usually watch all 12 episodes, and they're about 45 minutes apiece. I can watch them in one or two days. I don't watch any other TV other than sports, and this is the best show on TV by far. Not that I know, because as I said, I don't watch any other TV. But I'm guessing, and I think I might be right. The latest season, as I said, just dropped, and I really implore you to watch it. It's that good. You you won't exhale until the last scene of the last show. It's that good. And just so you know, Fauda, you're probably wondering, what does that even mean? It's an Arabic word for chaos, and that's what oftentimes happens in these undercover operations. Things just turn into chaos. But what I appreciate the most about the show is that it tells a very true depiction of the cat and mouse game that Israeli defense forces and the Palestinian terrorists and other Iranian-backed terrorists have. And I'm talking about Hezbollah. They're the uh, Lebanese uh, terror group supported by Iran. There's just a cat and mouse game in force between the two sides. And they're really, they couldn't be more different. Israel is a functioning society, one of the world's leaders in science, medicine, business, technology. Palestine and Iran are completely bankrupt morally and otherwise. They spend a huge amount of their assets on terrorism and trying to kill Israelis. And nothing is too low for them. Nothing, nothing at all. And I'm just going to give you a quick aside. In 1979, at the time of the throwover of the Shah of Iran and the creation of the Muslim terror state of Iran, its currency, the rial, needed 70 to equal one U.S. dollar. 70 rial for one U.S. dollar. In 1999, 20 years later, one U.S. dollar equaled 9,430 rials. Today... 2023, one U.S. dollar equals over 42,000 reals. That's what has happened to their currency. It's virtually toilet paper at this point. Terrorism is clearly bad for business, and Iran is willing to destroy its country to rob its people in order to continue to spend all of their assets on terrorism. Lebanon was once a thriving country as well. It was uh, Beirut. Their capital was called the Paris of the Middle East, which is sort of shocking when you consider what they are today. It's fully bankrupt. They have electricity a couple hours a day. That's all. Can you imagine? This was like the jewel of the Middle East, of the Arab Middle East. The Lebanese can't get their money out of their banks. 
Iran installed, as I said, its terror proxy Hezbollah to take the country over. And the first thing they did was kill the Lebanese prime minister. And now Lebanon is simply a hollowed out state. Its only purpose is to receive weapons to use against Israel, which is directly adjacent to them. And if you're not familiar with these facts, they're almost impossible to believe, I know. But you know, Google them. It's all the truth. So why does this cat and mouse game make for such a thrilling TV show? I was thinking about it. One side is sophisticated and educated, and they use the most incredible technology to stop terrorism and also to avoid civilian civilian casualties, which to me is just crazy. What other country is so concerned about avoiding civilian casualties to the point that they'd put their own people in danger? which is just nuts to me. You're in a war. If some of them have to die in order to protect you, well, you know, war is hell. This is what happens. And as I said, the other side, the Iranian-backed Palestinians, they're just this wildly vicious, amoral. They're happily willing to sacrifice their children to murder Israelis. And they hope, of course, for civilian casualties to use as propaganda. I'm not making this up. Look at any mother of a terrorist who just killed Jews in Israel, you know, the Palestinian mother, and then was the terrorist was shot dead. Look at the mother. They're smiling. They're happy. They act as if they're just seeing their kid walk across the stage at graduation from college. So I, I suppose the way to depict this cat and mouse game on TV is as follows, and I'm going to mix uh, a metaphor here. Israel builds these intricate sandcastles, the most intricate sandcastle you've ever seen. And thousands of millions of people join in to make it the best sandcastle you can ever imagine. It takes years to create. Palestinians and their Iranian terrorist backers, they walk by and kick it over. It's a lot easier to kick a sandcastle over than it is to make a good one. And it's hard to stop someone from kicking over a sandcastle if they want to, if they're willing to do anything to kick the sandcastle over. And that's really what exists right now over there in the Middle East. Fauda is a top show in numerous Arab states, too. It's at the top of the Netflix uh, streaming charts in Lebanon, where much of this season takes place. It's in the top 10 in the United Arab Emirates, in Qatar, and in Jordan. It really does show both sides of the conflict, which is why the show is not just dismissed as Israeli propaganda. It does show the toll that terrorism takes on the good Palestinian people. And it's sad. It's actually sad to watch. They get abused by the terrorists in Palestine, and uh, they have no choice. If they speak up, they'll be killed. If they try to stop them, they'll be killed. Their children will be killed. So the, the honest people that exist there really have no choice, and they end up acting like criminals as well because they get dragged into the mess. Anyway, I digress. In real life, a horrible Palestinian terror attack occurred in Israel on Friday. Seven worshippers at an Israeli synagogue were murdered by a Palestinian terrorist as they were leaving. One was a 14-year-old boy who was shot at point-blank range by the Palestinian terrorist. And he was just shooting at anyone and everyone that he could get at close range. They were all civilians. None of them were carrying weapons. None of them were dressed in military uniforms. There were many more who were injured, including, as I said, children. Israel is castigated worldwide for the death of any Palestinian civilian, and even though Palestinians actually target civilians, and no one seems to care. 
This murderous attack was met with celebrations in the Palestinian territories. And I mean celebrations, like they just won the World Cup. They're passing out candy to children. Children are running around happy, big smiles on their faces. They're firing their automatic weapons into the air. They launched fireworks over Jerusalem. Imagine being an Israeli in Jerusalem, and over Jerusalem you see fireworks. Why? Because the Palestinians are celebrating the fact that children were murdered. This is how debased, how filthy, how diseased their society is. To them, this was a great military victory, a cowardly terror attack against unarmed people, slaughtering unarmed innocents, women, children, who had just left the place of worship. To them, all Israelis are fair game, including kids, because they want all of Israel, not just their own state. Now, they can publicly celebrate such naked terrorism because the international community expects nothing from them, and they don't punish them for it at all. And let me say something, and I know this is going to be, this is politically incorrect, but this is a fully diseased society. This is a fully diseased people. All. And it's the truth. They're diseased from the moment they're raised on hate by their parents who teach them to hate, to think that Jews are are, are subhuman. Uh, They're then brought to school where they're taught in their textbooks to hate. When terror attacks are celebrated, they learn some more. They are raised from the cradle to the grave to hate. They don't care as much about their children as they care about dead Israeli children, which is why they've got such big smiles on their faces when their own children are martyred. That means killed during a terrorist attack. This is why the children happily dress up as suicide bombers. This is why they name stores after Hitler. And what other place in the world is this not only accepted, but it's just no one even cares. Only in Palestine, because they are a fully diseased society. And I don't want to hear this shit that it's only a a small amount of Palestinians. It's not. I know the politically correct thing to say is it's just free Palestine from Hamas. It's not true. They're just as bad as the terrorists. They elected them, although there's an election like once every 20 years. They elected them. They also support them. You don't see that great big uprising there, do you, by the people? In addition, every poll taken of the Palestinian people showed that like 95% of them are anti-Semitic. So don't tell me that these are good people and they're being led astray by some bad. They're fully diseased, every one of them just about. There's some good ones. I guess the 5% that don't hate Jews from birth. Now, it's thought that this latest terror attack was in response to the Israeli military entering a terrorist stronghold in the West Bank and surrounding a terror hideout last Wednesday. Why were they there? To capture the Iranian-backed Islamic Jihad terrorists. Imagine having some nice folks named Islamic Jihad living, you know, a mile from you. You'd, You'd feel comfortable, right? They were planning an imminent terror attack inside their hideout were bombs, weapons, And when the Israelis went to try to find them, they were met with bombs, gunfire. Bombs were detonated on the streets as well. 
All of the dead, all that Israel killed during that raid, all but two of them were terrorists who were claimed by various Palestinian terror groups. There were two civilians that were killed in the crossfire. Now, understand that the Islamic Jihad is paid by Iran for one reason, to kill Israelis. They don't exist for any other purpose. They're not a humanitarian group. They're terrorists like ISIS, like Al-Qaeda, like the Taliban, like Hamas. Indeed, of the seven terrorists that were killed during that raid, four were actually from Hamas and two were from Islamic Jihad and one was from the president of the Palestinian people, his political party. This terrorist day job, when he wasn't being a terrorist, was being a member of the security services for the Palestinian Authority, which means he actually is tasked with helping coordinate security with Israel. So you can imagine uh, how good of a job this uh, this terrorist was doing coordinating with Israel when he's trying to kill them uh, the rest of the day. Now, naturally, all of Palestine's leaders called for the arrests of his, the Israeli leaders for trying to stop this terrorism, because you're not allowed to stop terrorism when you're Israeli, apparently. And they called for revenge attacks. These are the leaders calling for revenge attacks. They called for the International Criminal Court to get involved. But at no point did they mention that the terrorists were killed with one purpose in mind, to kill Israelis. And they weren't looking to kill them inside Palestine. They were looking to kill them inside Israel. America, you know, the Biden administration called for calm. They made a moral equivalence between Israel killing armed terrorists, planning terror attacks, and such as Palestinian terrorists walking to a synagogue and slaughtering unarmed worshipers. That was the moral equivalence. You can't kill Israelis walking out of a synagogue, and Israel, you can't kill armed terrorists who want to kill you when you're walking out of a synagogue. Naturally, the international media, when describing the Israeli incursion into the West Bank to arrest these terrorists, didn't mention that those who were killed were armed terrorists. And this is the double standard. Putin is slaughtering innocent people in their apartment buildings in uh, the Ukraine, and he takes less international flack than Israel does for trying to arrest armed Iranian-backed terrorists, which is just incredible to me. They're actually planning attacks. On the day that Israel killed these terrorists in the West Bank, our State Department, America's, issued a statement saying that we understand the need uh, for calm and security. Again, pure moral equivalence. It's gross. And on that day last week that Israel did this, America uh, sent forces 10,000 miles away from America and killed ISIS leaders in Somalia. Our Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, he's the one that wears all those COVID shields and masks, like six or seven uh, at the same time and still gets COVID all the time. He said, our January, on January 25th, on orders from the president, the U.S. military conducted an assault operation in northern Somalia that resulted in the death of a number of ISIS members, blah, 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 blah. So his, his point is, is that we're allowed to send forces over to kill people 10,000 miles away. The terrorists there were responsible for fostering the growing presence of ISIS in Africa. And yet Israel is not allowed to go into the town next door and kill armed terrorists who are planning attacks inside Israel. That's just beyond idiotic. I mean, it just makes no sense at all. Israel's response will be tepid at best. It always is. They arrested a number of people close to the killer. I think they left five of them in jail. 
what happened soon thereafter. A 13-year-old Palestinian boy shot two more Israelis a few hours later. He was 13 years old. Israel will continue to hunt down terrorists. They'll blow up the houses of terrorists, and they'll respond when they're attacked. But they won't do what needs to be done, which should have been done immediately, was to assassinate 20 Palestinian terror leaders from all of the different terror groups. Kill them all in one day. They, they know exactly where they are. Kill them. Drop bombs on their houses. Kill them. Teach the Palestinians that if you commit terrorism, this is the payback every single time. Look, the, the stupidest animal from the jungle understands negative reinforcement. Surely, even the Palestinians are wise enough to understand what happens, that if you stick your hand in a flame, you're going to get burned. Israel can do it, but they're afraid of international criticism, even though the criticism is just completely a double standard. How many Israelis need to die until they simply carpet bomb the shit out of what's next door? Apparently never enough. The Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu urged people against revenge attacks after that happened, <clears throat> which is a completely opposite of what the Palestinian leadership did. So it's, it's incredibly frustrating to me. And when you have instead in Palestine, where the textbooks are filled with incitement to kill Israelis, the Palestinians cry about their children being killed, but then they sacrifice them for jihad. Why else would you brainwash them in school but for them to die during jihad? Why would you let them dress in suicide vests? Why would you bring them to riots? Why would you let them celebrate when Jewish children are slaughtered? It's for one reason, to brainwash. If they cared about their kids so much, they would be crying when they're turned into martyrs by their school, by their government. But instead, they just seem to be very happy about it. It's just completely bizarre. Nothing ever changes over there. And it amazes me that Israelis put up with it. They've got a new government in place, but it's led by the same leader who Israel had for years. And the Netanyahu and the Palestinians are claiming that the new government is so right-wing that they'll cause too much trouble for Palestinians. There'll never be peace. Meanwhile, the Palestinian government is Hamas. Is that not right-wing? I mean, I don't know. And your like charter talks about genocide of Jews. I would say that's fairly right-wing, perhaps even a little further right-wing than the Israeli government, but I don't know. Anyway, last uh, comment to talk about this. Here's a flashback from 12 years ago in 2011. Palestinian terrorists broke into the home of residents of an Israeli settlement in the West Bank, and they stabbed to death five members of the family, including a three-month-old baby whose throat was slit. The initial reaction of Palestinians was typical, same as 2023, 12 years later. They hit the streets to celebrate. They were handing out candy to children in the streets. They were letting off fireworks. It's just you know insane. They were shooting their automatic weapons into the air. Of course, they blamed Israel for the terror attacks against Israel. The president of the Palestinian Authority, it's the same guy because they don't have elections. As I said, He's actually a dictator, right? We call him president. He issued a condemnation but blamed Israel for the attack, but also said there was no evidence of Palestinian involvement in the terror attack. I mean, you know, 
I guess an Israeli decided to slit the throats of babies. Unfortunately, that's the hallmark of Palestinians. That's the kind of terrorism they do. And the two killers were caught and they admitted their involvement. They were Palestinians. They received help from other Palestinians to hide them. And one of the killers actually worked inside Israel and said that he wanted to die a martyr's death. Both of the killers were teenagers. Both had been brainwashed in schools and by their families. So fast forward to 2023 and seven innocent worshipers were killed in Israel on Holocaust Remembrance Day of all things. Also by a young Palestinian celebrations, the cars are honking their horns, fireworks, joy in the streets. Even Iran got involved. And this is a so-called sovereign nation, a UN member, which has a nuclear weapons program. They praise the attack. They praise the murder of innocent worshipers. The, their uh, proxy in Lebanon, Hezbollah, they also celebrated. To the death cult of radical Islam, innocence killed is a reason to celebrate. Nothing has changed in the last 12 years. Nothing has changed in the last 50 years. Fauda. Israel seems to think this is a tolerable way to live. I don't get it. it makes no sense to me because Israel could wipe this disease out. It may, yes, it may make Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and the Democrats cry, but I think Israel feels it's okay. We can live our life. We have this great country. So what if there's the occasional terror attack? That's the mentality. But the, the terrorists are getting stronger, and there's eventually going to be 10,000 dead Israelis, and that's what's going to take them to get off their asses and do what the international community seemingly won't let them do. Yes, they're going to cry, the international community, but the Palestinian terror machine needs to be destroyed once and for all. Kill all their leadership first. If there's new leaders that come in, kill all of them. Before they get something even worse, a dirty bomb, whatever, you've got to destroy the terror regime in Iran. You can't continue to let them get stronger. Makes no sense. The poor people over there who don't hate Jews even nearly as much as Palestinians. In fact, the Iranian people over there can't stand the Palestinians. Why? Because all their money is going to the Palestinians for terrorism. The Iranian regime is slaughtering their own people. But they're not going to get overthrown without some outside help. And Israel's got to do it with America if need be. There, If you remember back in 1981, Israel destroyed Iraq's nuclear reactor. And who do you think the bombs were meant for? Of course, they were meant for Israel. Even Ronald Reagan criticized Israel back then. And a few years later, America's invading Iraq and Israel did the world a service by ending their nuclear ambitions. Fauda. Finally, I even thought of just letting the Palestinians have access to the seas, let them have their own airport, give them the freedom that they claim Israel is denying them, and just treat them as if there's no occupation at all. As soon as they commit the first terror act, obliterate the country. Treat it like the Ukraine, like Putin is doing. The difference is that the Ukrainians were not committing terror attacks inside Russia. So Putin is actually doing it just because he wants to take over the country and destroy the Ukraine. Israel would have every right internationally to go in there and absolutely kill every terrorist, everything that even appears to look like a terrorist, just the way every other country does when they are on the bad end of an attack. 
And I thought about it, but it would never work because Egypt and Jordan, two allies of America, and have a cold peace with Israel, they'd lose their minds if Israel ever allowed the Palestinians to have a freedom of, of movement completely. Why? Because they know the Palestinians will come into Egypt, they'll come into Jordan, and they'll kill all of them as well. That's what they do. That's their job. That's what they were put on this earth for. That's why Egypt doesn't let them cross into their country from Gaza. That's why Jordan doesn't let them have full freedom, because they know if you do it, you're going to get killed. They've already killed enough Egyptians. They've already killed uh, enough Jordanians, including the king of Jordan once. They don't want the terrorism. It's not just Israel. It's just blamed on Israel. And finally, I'm going to end here because I'm talking too long about this again, but this obviously is a, a pet issue to me. Liberals in America hate when the Iranian terror regime is killing their own people. They hate it. Liberals scream about the slaughter in the street by Iran. They scream about the fact that the Iranian regime is shooting protesters in the faces and the genitals, locking them up, executing them without trials, denying them their freedom. But somehow, somehow liberals in America, they have no problem with the same Iranian terror regime paying Palestinians to kill Israelis paying Hezbollah in Lebanon to kill Israelis. Somehow, from where the Iranians are killing their own people to paying terrorists to kill Jews in Israel, something gets lost in the translation. Suddenly, Iran isn't so bad. Suddenly, now these Iranian-backed terrorists in Palestine are victims. They're beloved by Democrats, by liberals. When they're in Iran, they're hated. In Palestine, they're victims. They're heroes. I wonder what exists in Israel that causes such a massive sea change of opinion when the murder flows from Iran to Palestine. Can you guess? Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'm going to be back after a quick break. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I want to talk about the murder of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. We've all seen the brutal video now of him being beaten to death by five Memphis cops, and they've all been arrested for murder. It's pretty disgusting, actually. I shouldn't even give a qualifier. It's the most disgusting thing that you can imagine seeing. There's just no excuse for it. There's no justification. He was a resisting arrest, I suppose, slightly at the beginning. Um, but he stopped resisting, and he was basically begging the cops to let him go, to stop beating him. All the officers should receive life in prison. There's really no other explanation. I mean, this is just, it's beyond the beyond. It's so bad. And look, if you can't do the job, if you can't do it, don't do it. Take another job. I don't know. There's got to be something else. I think one of the cops that was arrested used to work in a Wendy's. You can go back to Wendy's, you can go back to Burger King, go work there. You don't have to be a cop who kills other people. There's plenty of good things happening in, in Burger King. I'm sure you'll be happy there. But that's not what really what I'm here to talk about. To me, this was simply an issue of police brutality. It happens. It doesn't happen a lot, but it happens with some regularity, more regularity than it should as we certainly know. And it's never going to really end because cops are human. They get abused too much and they get frustrated apparently. And then they commit horrible crimes like this. But I'll be honest. Uh, I, I was relieved when I learned that it was not white cops involved. 
And I felt after guilty. It's kind of horrible that I thought of that first. But that's kind of what happens with this stuff. You say to yourself, I don't want to be prejudiced. But sometimes it just happens. And you're just left with thinking, well, how does it happen? Beyond knowing that the country would get burned down again to the ground like it did when George Floyd was killed a few years back, I just hope that this wasn't a racist act, that it just was another example of bad police work turning into murder. Because I just didn't want to believe all the time that white cops are all racist. And that's really the truth. I'm being honest now. To me, that's what it was, though. Just bad cops. There were five black cops killing a, a black suspect. These are just horrible, evil people who just beat him to death for no good reason. It wasn't like he was fighting back or even had a criminal record or was dangerous. But what also horrified me after was the claim by liberals that this was a racist act, even though it was black-on-black black crime. That white people, they're saying, white supremacy is to blame for the murder, which is just, it's just ludicrous. And then I read some of the articles. One was by Van Jones in particular. I think I saw it on CNN. And one thing he wrote resonated with me, really just one. Quote, it's almost impossible to imagine five black cops giving a white arrestee this kind of beatdown that Nichols allegedly received. And he's right. It's very hard to imagine that. But I think what isn't mentioned in his article is that blacks commit violent crimes in America at two to three times their percentage of the population, their per capita representation, while with whites, it's less than one. Now, there are a whole score of reasons for this, many of them having to do with racism itself. It's true. I mean, blacks aren't just born bad to commit crimes. They go through an indoctrination. They go through a life that's different than what people that sound like me go through. And I say this to judges all the time. You know, you just can't take a measure of the man when he's standing in front of you today. You got to see what he went through to get here. But it doesn't change the fact that cops deal with more violent black men than white men. And that may be part of the reason why there are more black victims of police violence than whites. I don't know. And it may be why black cops may have killed this black man here instead of if it was a white guy. That's prejudice. Is it like knowing racism? I don't think so. I just think that you get conditioned. Doesn't make it right, but I think that's probably what happened. But everything isn't racism. I don't, I don't see this as racist, this murder. I just see it as police out of control once again in such a horrifying manner. It was all caught on the body cams. Imagine knowing that you're wearing a body cam and you've got so little self-control that you're just stomping this poor guy to death. Everything is not racism. And if you continue to blame everything on racism, then you're never going to get out of the bad situation that you're in. That's the truth. And the blacks are, are going to get nowhere if everything is just racism because you're never going to eliminate it completely. Sometimes you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and get shit done. And I read that the interim coach of the Carolina Panthers football team, a black guy named Steve Wilkes, didn't get the permanent job after the head coach was fired midway through last season. The owner of the team installed him as the interim head coach uh, midway through the season. He went 6-6, six and six, but he ended up hiring somebody different when the season was over. He wanted an offensive-minded coach, and he ended up hiring a guy with a stronger 
work experience, with a longer record, with successful playoff teams. Steve Wilkes, on the other hand, was 3-13 and in his one year as the head coach of the Cardinals, and he was fired after that one year. This is before he was with the Panthers. So what was Wilkes' reaction when he didn't get the permanent head coaching job in, excuse me, my mistake. What was his reaction when he got fired by the Cardinals? This was a few years ago after a 3-13 and season. He sued, and he claimed racial discrimination. He then got an assistant job with the Panthers, as I said. He then filled in as the interim head coach, had a 6-6 six and six record when he was promoted, and uh, he interviewed for the position, the permanent head coach job, and didn't get it. So what did his lawyer say? This is the same lawyer that's already suing the Cardinals for Wilkes after he got fired after his last job. What was the lawyer's response? Well, of course, this is what he said. Quote, we are shocked and disturbed that after the incredible job Coach Wilkes did as the interim coach, including bringing the team back into playoff contention and garnering the support of the players and fans, that he was passed over for the head coach position by owner David Tepper. There is legitimate race problems in the NFL, and we can assure you that we will have more to say in the coming days. Listen, go fuck yourself. This pasty-faced white lawyer from New York City, this ambulance chaser, is now going to sue another team? Look, first of all, he didn't bring the Panthers to playoff contention. He went 6-6 six and six on a team that was, you know, like horribly under 500. He did a damn good job, but don't lie and say that he brought them to playoff contention because he didn't. And understand this, the owners of pro sports teams are highly competitive, highly accomplished people, billionaires. Do you think they want to lose? I mean, I understand that they may want to tank a season to get a, a good draft choice so they can get the quarterback of the future, but they don't want to lose consistently. They're competitive. So they're purposely, according to this pasty-faced ginger lawyer, they're purposely hiring inferior coaches when they can hire a black coach with a lousy career record? That doesn't make any sense. Why do the owners pay for the best players? So they can get inferior coaches to lead the team? Carolina had a black quarterback once, but they won't hire a black head coach, even though they promoted one to interim head coach. You can't force guys who paid billions of dollars for a team, their private property, to hire a black dude just because he's got some pasty-faced white lawyer who wants more money. How many teams is this guy going to sue? Guess what? I'd never hire Steve Wilkes. Why? Because he keeps on suing when he fails. Who wants that trouble? When he gets fired or doesn't get his way, he sues. No one needs it. There's plenty of other qualified people. Hire someone else who can handle failure better. 3-13 and 13 and 6-6 six and six doesn't mean that you get every head coaching job that you apply for. And it's frustrating to me because at what point does this stop in society? We've got affirmative action out the ass. You've got minority kids no longer have to even take the SATs anymore. They get spots over white kids in college, even though they're clearly inferior students. When does it end? You think that the students that these schools are churning out are going to be as good as the ones that are better students before they get to the college? I'm not saying that some kids from bad backgrounds don't deserve that kind of break. They do because they are held back. But don't make some kind of blanket determination, no more SATs, 
Because it's just, it's ridiculous. You're getting inferior people in college. The colleges are being dumbed down. It's true. Now you're going to have private business owners. <clears throat> they have to hire blacks instead of hiring who they want. Look, there's way more blacks on NFL rosters than whites. Should that number come down to accommodate the whites who perhaps aren't as good? Teams want to win. Leave them alone. There's, uh, there's not enough black head coaches in the NFL, but guess what? They need to achieve in order to get hired. Mike Tomlin is the head coach of the, the Steelers. He's fantastic. He's won a Super Bowl, at least one. I think probably two, maybe more. I don't even know with Ben Roethlisberger. It may not be fair that there's not as many black coaches as there should be, but you cannot force people who have private property to give it away. I mean, I understand that liberals want reparations, but these are subjective decisions who you hire as your head coach, unlike the SAT, which is an objective test and is colorblind. But because that won't get more minorities into good colleges, it gets scrapped. Maybe we should scrap the 40-yard dash at the NFL scouting combine. I mean, I don't know. The whites do as well as blacks on that? Maybe we should scrap it because maybe it's not fair. Maybe it's racist. I don't know. One other quick issue I want to discuss is you've got January 6th defendants getting six, seven, eight years in jails. Much of it is deserved. You can't drag police officers into angry crowds and let them get beaten. You can't assault cops. You can't carry a gun inside Congress. Those defendants deserve serious time, and they got it. Uh, one just got a lot of years the other day. But similarly, you shouldn't be able to throw Molotov cocktail bombs at police cars and get only 12 to 15, and 15 months in prison, as the two lawyers in New York did. The second one just got sentenced last week. He got 12 months and a day. 12 months and a day. That means it's, he only has to serve about eight months in prison. And this was after the Biden administration's Justice Department let the two lawyers vacate their plea agreements and plead to something lower, which never happens. Never. I've never seen it happen federally. I want to blame it only on the Department of Justice for doing this, but even the judge in this case, as I said, Brian Cogan, the judge that I had in Chapo's case, went soft on him. He's a George W. Bush nominee, surely is conservative. But he sentenced, as I said, one to 12 months in a day, meaning six, eight months in prison. And the leader, the, the female terrorist, uh, the fellow lawyer, Uruj Rahman, to 15 months in prison. Both of their sentencing guideline ranges were 18 to 24 month, months. That's the advisory guideline range, which is weak as shit as it is. One of the lawyers went to Princeton. Both of them went to top law schools. They knew better. They were officers of the court. They were educated. They were not hillbillies dumb enough to follow Donald Trump off a cliff. Kogan could have at least given them a guideline sentence of between 18 and 24 months, but he went soft, just like his, uh, his, uh, his patron, George W. Bush. Somehow, when the leftist judges in D.C. get their hands on the January 6th hillbillies, they slam the hell out of them. When a conservative judge finally gets his chance with violent Antifa scumbags who already received the gift of a lifetime from the Justice Department, which, as I said, took the unusual step of letting them vacate their plea agreements for no reason at all, no reason was given, <clears throat> the judge still goes soft. 
If that is not the problem with the Republican Party in a nutshell, I don't know what is. And don't tell me that Kogan is just being a fair, objective judge, and he's not concerned about politics or how it appears. It's false. Because when I represented Chapo, he denied the most basic motions. The most basic motions. I'm allowed to cross-examine a cooperating witness on issues about his ability to tell the truth if he's ever done something dishonest. Here's something that Judge Kogan would not let me cross-examine Alex Cifuentes on. When he was in prison in South America, he drugged the coffee he was making for other prisoners to make them sleep because they were loud and he wanted to sleep more himself. So he drugged the coffee that he made for them and handed it to them without telling them. Kogan said I couldn't cross-examine him on that because he said it was not a dishonest act. Blech. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. I'll be back again next week. You can hear me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, beyondthelegallimit.com. Please write to me. Uh, you can like the podcast on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. The more likes it gets, the more it'll show up on searches, and then the whole world will become brainwashed. You'll all become little Palestinians to me. I'll brainwash you all. Thank you and see you next week.